0: All right. Well, we're going into the first, my first message of the year. We're out of town Wednesday in Seattle. Mr. Michael taught for me on forgiveness and some wonderful stuff, but I'm excited to kind of uh, extend from his message a little bit. But I want to give you some New Year's tips and techniques before I get into my message, so this can be part of it, just to remind you as a pastor how to get the most out of the ministry of the Word. We know how to worship. You simply participate. That's all it is. Show up, lift your hands, sing, even if you don't like the song. Yes, we make mistakes on the worship team. Yes, sometimes the mix is bad. This morning, the sound guys—I walk in and the sound was horrible. And I come down and look at them, and Luke just looks at me and says, "We both are head congested. We can't hear anything." I said, "Well, okay, that explains it because it sounds horrible." He said, "Well, I have a good ear. Josh has a good ear. We figured we just kind of like, like, combine our senses and still come up with a horrible mix. Apparently, we understand how to worship. Press him, but." We are a teaching church, and most of the time, most weeks, if I'm not out of town, I'm teaching four services a week, and that's a lot of doctrine. I'm not a preacher. So you're going to have to motivate yourself until we bring in the evangelist or one of our lay pastors or lay teachers who can have a a little preaching gift on them. So you're going to have to motivate yourself. Uh, And there's a couple warnings that come with being a teaching church, primarily, probably that much learning can make you mad. That's a quote from the Bible. Also, knowledge puffeth up. So please don't be deceived into just taking notes and thinking you're right with God. There's often the deception that just because I know it means I'm doing it. No. Doing it means you're doing it. Take notes, yes, but make sure you do what you've been convicted to do. So I I encourage you to bring a Bible and a notepad. We are One of the things that guest ministers compliment us on is like, Pastor Chris almost all your people had a Bible. I said, yeah, is that not normal? Not anymore. The Seeker Friendly Church has taught us that if you put all every scripture on the Jumbotron, every service, people quit bringing their Bible altogether, which means they don't know their Bible. I, I would also add, I'm not against digital devices, and I use it, and there are times I'm in meetings and I don't have a Bible, and I've got two or three Bible apps, and I've got a couple Talmud apps on my phone where I study the Talmud, which is the Old Testament Jewish commentary. But there is something better than digital. Again, take notes however you want to, but there's just something about having a tangible Bible. And if you're old school, you get it. You're like, yeah. And again, I'm pretty tech savvy. I've written books, so I get it. But there's just something about knowing your Bible for yourself, your eyes looking on the page. Because honestly, if you give me a brand new Bible, I have trouble finding stuff. I can't even find stuff digitally as fast as I can find it in my own Bible. Because I don't remember the word or I misspell it because it's King James and there's missing a U or it's an if. Forgiveth. It's forgived. If. And so then I can find it sometimes faster in my own Bible. And so I, I'm not against you having digital devices, but just be mindful. There's something to having paper and notepads. If all you have is digital, fine. But I would also add, it helps you if you have... Pad and pad, uh, Bible, it helps your neighbor not just judge you for being on ESPN the whole service. We were in our discipleship. I've discipled a couple of guys on Thursday nights, and I was, I was teaching really good, and one of the guys was just on his phone like this. And I thought, so help me God if he's texting somebody, I will rip his soul through his nose. And then he put it down. I could see he was taking notes that way. I was like, oh, whew. glad for both of us. I was like, Why can't you be normal like the rest of the guys and write this down with a pencil? Piece of, anyway, Be prepared to write down what the Lord speaks to you. Now, again, these are just reviews. I do a lot of teaching. You're not responsible for everything I teach. It's a lot. You're responsible for what jumps out at you when I teach. Just as soon as I teach, you'll listen to something, the person next to you is frantically writing. Two minutes later, you're frantically writing, they're just listening. Then you're laughing, they're crying. Then you're angry and they're leaving. It's dynamic. So you're not responsible for everything that gets taught, but you are responsible for what the Holy Spirit keeps reiterating to you. That's why you want to write it down. Use your notes to spur your personal Bible study at home. This will solve the question I hear a lot, which is, Pastor, I don't know what to study in my Bible. What should I study? And I usually say, well, what's, what's the Lord speaking to you during service? Go back, look at your notes, and kind of jump from there and see what God shows you. If I'm teaching something and you're convicted or you're like, oh, that's good, not everybody's saying, oh, that's good at the same moment. So that's something you might want to go study for yourself. Over the course of time, I always, I've taught, go back over your notes and see what theme arises in those notes. I teach four different services a week, four different messages, themes, or series. And typically when God's dealing with you, you're going to hear the same thing in almost every service. Uh, whether it's forgiveness or grace or healing or diligence, whatever that theme is, you need to be able to pick up on the bigger picture. Yes, there'll be other scriptures or other notes you write down, but if, if almost all your notes have this theme about excellence, excellence and diligence, excellence, diligence, and faithfulness, that's what the Lord is dealing with you in your life about. That's where he wants to talk to you outside of church, and that's what you should focus on. I say and teach a lot of things in every service, and I want you to know, I try to say this regularly, it's okay to disagree with me. You have permission. We're not the Catholic Church. We're not a cult. You have brains and minds. You have permission to think, to be articulate and intellectual. I would hope you're intellectual. We have a lot of PhDs in this church, a lot of master's degrees, a lot of educated people you should have permission to disagree. We can disagree without being disagreeable. And I would fully expect every one of you to be like the noble Bereans who heard Paul and they received with an open heart, but they daily searched the scriptures to see if these things be so because what Paul was saying, they ain't never heard before. Though he's saying it from the same scriptures they knew because they're being taught in the synagogue, I think at Thessalonica there in Berea. So it's okay to disagree with me. You should disagree with me. Somebody was just telling me, Pastor, I agree with 99% of everything you say, whether in doctrine or heart. And I said, you're doing better than me because I don't agree with 99% of everything I say. And that is the God's honest truth. I'll get done and I'm like, well, that wasn't right. Or like, I can say that better. I don't think I'm ever teaching that again. That's dumb. So if you're at 99%, please teach me how because I, I want to like me that much. <laughs> I, I make mistakes. I misquote scriptures occasionally. I confuse Bible characters from time to time. I was out in Seattle, and I said, Zechariah and Zephaniah were raised up as prophets of restoration, and I was dead wrong. It's Zechariah and Haggai. Now, nobody caught it, but as soon as I said it, I was like, it's not Zephaniah. Who's the other guy I'm thinking of? Nobody was thinking of him, but I was, and it was important to me to get it right. I confuse Bible characters, and we'll teach a concept Uh, from time to time that may require, excuse, may be entirely new to you or may be too extreme for you. And it's okay to disagree and say, I'm not sure about that, but don't stop there. Be like the noble Bereans, go study it out. And if after that, you still don't see what I'm trying to communicate, unless it's heresy, just move on. Uh, Don't get hung up on it. Uh, There's some stuff I, I used to be fervent on 10 years ago. I don't even touch anymore. It's not important or God's not emphasizing it. So I, would, I just don't want you to get hung up on something. It's like on one thing. Don't let one thing be the burr that snags you. Unless it's heresy, just move on and put into practice the other 53 things that were covered that week in church <laughs> and come ask me what, what I'm seeing or what the heart behind the teaching is. And if you'll bring it to me, and in private, I'll debate anybody's scripture. You can say, I don't see this pastor. Uh, can you give me three more verses for it? Or That seems, that seems a little fringe. You may be right. And maybe it did come out a little fringe in that service, um, and maybe I can adjust it or accommodate it uh, and say, yeah, you're right, that is. Pastor, you got, I got two verses over here that seem to contradict what you're saying, and then maybe you bring something to me I've never seen before, and we got to adjust everything, and I am totally up for that. Even my kids bring Scripture to me and hold my feet to the fire. My wife does pretty regularly, and I think, all right, well, we got to submit to the Word and adjust that. But if you will pray about it or not get hung up and make a, maybe an idol out of it from time to time, Some people do that, not in this church, but others. Then what that'll do is it'll help bring clarity, or again, bring it to me and let's discuss it. It'll bring clarity, maybe even for me, and I can see something. Maybe I need a a little bit of help adjusting how I'm communicating something. You're always, as as a communicator, you're always adjusting how you're saying to those who are listening. And one of the mistakes every preacher makes is we assume you know what we're talking about. And even as a traveling minister, I have to get a feel for who's present in how I cover biblical stories. I can't just say, you know, it's like Gideon, if nobody in the church knows who Gideon is. I can't say, you know what? It's just like Ezra and Nehemiah. Gotta build that wall with a brick and a sword. And they're like, who are these guys? What are you talking about? So we're always adjusting how we teach for those present and where they're coming from. Doing this, studying, maybe bringing it to me, it'll help remove vain imaginations and most importantly, it'll glorify God. Finally, before I get into our subject of forgiveness, if you attend this church, I promise to teach messages designed to change your life. That means I will regularly address your problems. You guys affect my sermons. You steer my sermons. And to be honest, sometimes I'm like, oh, Lord, there's nobody in trouble. I don't even know what to do today. There's nobody ruining their life, nobody in trouble, nobody wanting to quit, nobody mad at me. I don't even know how. i got nothing to preach. I guess we'll just teach from the Word. There are times where I think, the church is a mess. It's going to be fun today. But when everybody's at peace, you just teach line upon line. If I regularly address your problems, this means you will have the choice to either get offended at the help or be thankful for the help. And I want you to know at any given service, I know a bulk of the problems going on here. And I don't always address them because they don't always need my attention. But don't be offended if your problem does get addressed. And please don't be offended if you just talk to me about your problem Thursday and all of a sudden I'm anointed Sunday morning to hammer on it. Statistics tell us half of you men are dealing with porn. Now, I don't know if that's true here, but that's the average statistic. Actually, they say 81% of Christian men struggle with porn. So any given service, I can throw that rock and hit somebody. But what if you come to me Thursday and you're like, pastor, I'm really struggling with this. My wife, she found my phone and she's ready to divorce me. And I, and I say, all right, man, let's pray about this. Let's get some scriptures going. Here's what you need to be doing. Let me talk to your wife. Let Miss Manda talk to your wife. We don't want to divorce over this. This is an addiction. This is a demon. Let's resist this thing. We deal with it. Please don't get offended if all of a sudden I am anointed thir- uh, Sunday morning to pound against porn. Don't take it so personal and say, this is only because we talked about it Thursday. Darn tootin', this is because we talked about it Thursday, and you should be ready for more medicine. I didn't call you by name. But if you're dealing with it and your wife's ready to divorce you, you were the humble one that brought it to me Thursday. We probably have three other guys whose wives aren't going to divorce, they're going to murder. So I want to prevent that. So take the message personal, but don't take it personal. Jesus and Paul preached sermons based on the sins present in that moment, and at any given moment, I know of so many problems present in our congregation, I could do the same. If you came with your sin, get ready, get ready, get ready. That is the only time I will ever say, get ready, get ready, get ready. You came with sin, oh boy, here we go. Babe Ruth... And if you came with your sin, this is your day for a miracle. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about forgiveness. And I want us to all be prepared to be severely adjusted. And I want to teach on forgiveness. It's been on my heart lately. I was, I was glad to hear about Michael teaching it Wednesday night. I'm concerned for the reason I need to teach on forgiveness. I think the bigger picture, if we can keep this in mind, will help us. I believe I need to start teaching on forgiveness because of what's coming. If the persecution the Bible promises and the persecution we're seeing in the other nations is, is ramping up, we're going to have to be good at truly forgiving enemies. Now, as it stands, we're not even really good at forgiving lovers. We're not really good at forgiving children we gave birth to or sired. We're not good at forgiving pastors or elders or the person I serve in the children's department with. So if we stink at forgiving the body of Christ, whom we labor with, we don't stand a chance when the persecution of the world continues its ramp up against us. And my concern is, if we're not ready, we could even curse ourselves through unforgiveness, though we're, we're being persecuted for our faith. And through the trials of our faith, we end up losing our faith because we can't activate the forgiveness that is a basic, basic Christian tenet. So I have a lot of footnotes, and then we're going to turn to some scriptures. They're not footnotes, but just notes. One of the Lord's greatest prayers was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we know that this is a prayer prayed at the height of torture. One of the last things he said with breath in his lungs When he had also testified at any moment, I could call down a legion of angels. He had that at his fingertips. And with the same voice, he could have commanded the angels in vengeance. And who knows what that would have done to us concerning salvation. He instead say, Lord, drop the charges. Now, I think we understand forgiveness literally means drop the charges. Somebody has violated us. And therefore, by nature, we have every right to use that term loosely. We have every right to be mad. They violated us. We now have charges against them. You offended me. And that offense can be everything from from robbery and gossip and slander to rape to you name it. We all have people who have sinned against us. But we know that to forgive means to drop those charges. The charges are genuine. The act is authentic. The violation is true. And yet, as an act of our heart, And will, Jesus said, we forgive, we drop the charges from the heart. Now, this is a commandment, which means it's something that must be practiced. It's a commandment, which also means it takes faith to accomplish. It's a commandment, and it takes faith, therefore, it comes by hearing and hearing and hearing, and then doing and doing and doing. If you have faith to forgive, then you do the faith. Like James said, faith that works is dead. So there's an actual work to the act of forgiving, which is, I drop the charges. And we're not all good at it. And then there are those people we can easily forgive and those others who we say, I hope they never sin against me because I'm not sure I could ever forgive them. We're all there. So this morning, we're all on equal playing field here. All right? Forgiveness is a commandment, not a suggestion. Because it is commanded, it is assumed, presumed, and determined we will be hurt and offended in life. We We would never have to forgive if we've never... We're going to be hurt. So by the very fact that the Bible says, forgive, Ephesians says, forgive even as God for Christ sake hath forgiven you. By the very fact we have that commandment means we're going to need to do it. In that regard, get ready, get ready, get ready. Somebody's going to offend you. Somebody's going to violate you. Someone's going to betray you. This is part of life. And we also know from the gospels, Jesus says, uh, we all offend. James says, we all offend. So we need forgiveness just as much as we need to forgive. Every one of you in here has offended somebody, right? Which means every one of us in here is offensive. Some of us mean to be. Some of us wear it like a badge of honor. Some of us don't mean to. Those of us who don't mean to offend, we're very quick to go and apologize and say, please forgive me. Those of us that maybe wear our hostility, our angst, and our bull in a china shop attitude as a badge of honor, we don't feel like we owe anybody an apology, which is very selfish and unbiblical. John 16, 3, the Lord says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. That's the promise. It's going to get rough. And that's why we have to be good at forgiving. We have to be good at dropping the charges the more you've been offended in your heart, the harder it will be to forgive. And truth be told, there are some things that we are offended by that we can't even explain why that cut harder than before. And we, I'm all for being judgy. We have permission to judge. We don't have permission to condemn. But it makes no sense to me why I can be violated one way and it rolls off my back like water off a duck's back. And it same violation makes you want to take up arms. And the same thing that you just roll off like nothing, I want to go tactical nuke on. It makes no sense. If we judge it, it doesn't make any sense. And that's okay. The heart's desperately wicked and curably sick. It is critical, though, that you figure out why was that such a violation. If that offended Nick but not me, Nick needs to figure out why that was so cutting to him. And if the next thing offends me but not Nick, I've got to figure out why that's so cutting to me. We can, in that regard, use offense and the need for forgiveness as a good judge of where our heart is. And we should use it. Because there's two things that can come of it. Number one, we can forgive, and number two, figure out why was that such a personal violation? Why, why didn't I laugh at that? Why, did I, why am I still thinking about that, still licking that wound three years later? Same thing happened to my, my mate or my brother in Christ, and they didn't even seem to think anything of it. We have to use these opportunities to grow. Forgiveness is one of the highest Christian tenets. And I, as I say, we're going to have to get better at forgiveness, beginning with those in our family, in our local church. And if we can't forgive those who we are closest to, what will we do as the world ramps up its newfound hatred for us? How many of you noticed that anti-Semitism has exploded in the last two months? almost out of nowhere. It's like the world spirit has has made it cool to hate Jews. Jews that live in America that have nothing to do with the Jewish war right now. I I am on a couple of Jewish mailers. I there's a couple of Jewish websites I visit, not because I'm like Jewish roots, but because I study Judaism and modern Hasidicism. And so I, I'm just kind of learn the culture. And uh, I got one of the letters from a rabbi saying, uh, we Jews, basically it assumes I'm a Jew because I'm on this mailer. And I registered for the mailer. Like nobody goes out of the way to register for a Jewish Hasidic mailer with newsletters unless they're Jewish. But it's really cool because they send me newsletters and articles about why this and why that, why do we do this? It's almost like Judaism for babies. And that's what I need to wrap my mind around all of it. But one of the things that Um, struck me. They were raising money because everything's non-for-profit, and they said, we're answering calls every day as to, this is Jews in our nation. Is it safe for us to go in public anymore? That's how the Jews in our nation feel, a true minority, like 2% of our population. They don't even feel safe to go in public anymore and their synagogues are being vandalized, and they're being spit on in public, and they're being called you know, genocidal morons. And So you have a large contingency of our Jewish population that doesn't even want to go in public because they're truly facing true oppression. Like professors are denigrating them in classes. If you did that to a black or a homosexual, so, this is where we're at. That's a spirit, though, ramping up a hatred against the Jews. So, I'm reading their Jewish newsletters as how they are to forgive and how they are to weather this storm. Now, it's only a switch till that thing comes anti Christian, because we're the next thing that stands in the way of righteousness, regardless. Forgiveness is a doctrine that defines Christianity. It truly is the one doctrine that defines us. We are known as the people of forgiveness. It is why comedians and TV shows don't have a problem making fun of us, but they won't touch Muslims. Even the secular comedians point this out, and I love it. They're like, we got to stop beating up on Christians if we're not going to beat up on radical Hindus and Muslims. Our God is a God of forgiveness. And the greatest event in human history was Christ's crucifixion, an eternal sacrifice that made forgiveness and redemption available to everybody. So this defines us. Forgiveness is what defines us. It is the core doctrine of the Christian faith. Hindus aren't known for forgiveness. Buddhists aren't known for forgiveness. Muslims aren't known for forgiveness. We're the ones that are supposed to be known for forgiveness. That's what we're supposed to be known for. The doctrine is also twofold recorded in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. Our early forefathers in the early church lined up to be martyred. They were excited to forgive their critics and their persecutors. They counted martyrdom as a a privilege. They wanted to be martyred. That's how much they had forgiveness coursing through their veins. Christianity acknowledges the total depravity of mankind and therefore our deep and desperate need for the forgiveness of sins. We're also, though, commanded to freely give what we freely received, and that includes forgiveness. And therein lies the rub. We don't freely give what we freely expect. We want to be able to ask God to forgive us, and we get it, but we don't want to give it as freely as it's requested. And truthfully, we should be so willing to give forgiveness, we give it before it's even asked for. Because it's not for them that we forgive, it's for our own sake. A problem arises when we freely receive of our necessary forgiveness from God, but then refuse to bestow it to anyone who has sinned against us. It's also obviously a violation of the Lord's Prayer. Now turn with me to Matthew 18. Let's read some scripture. Let's read this famous parable. I'm going to read it to you out of the King James. Very famous passage. I'm going to find it. uh, I have a footnote in the New Living Translation. That's become one of my new favorite translations. Don't study... It alone. I find errors in the New Living Translation, but it does a very good idea for idea translation at times. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Actually, verse 21. Then came Peter unto the Lord and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? How often do I have to forgive? Look, he's, if Pastor Vaughn taught me this years ago. If we're looking to count, our heart's not right. That was a severe rebuke. What restaurant were we in? Oh, Charlie's over there in the old part of Knoxville 20-something years ago. If I'm looking to count, my heart's not right. I'm just looking to fulfill the quota, and then I don't have to forgive anymore. And you see how low Peter set the standard. Seven times, huh? Only seven? It probably felt like that was a high number. I only have to forgive seven times, and then they'll learn their lesson, and they won't sin against me anymore. Then I won't have to change because they will have changed. I'm sure he felt pretty good. Only seven, huh? I mean, like that's a lot. And then I can do what I wanted to do anyway. Get my vengeance. Get my eye for an eye. Until seven times. And Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but I say 70 times seven. And that's, that's easy math. 490 times. The real question is, are you going to still be friends with somebody close enough that they can sin against you 490 times? And at the same time, what kind of friend is that that sins the same sin against you 490 times? The Lord is not an easy Lord. It's like Because the implication is you still have to be friends with him. You still have to be around him so he can sin against you that many times. In Luke's gospel, this is where they say, Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> Luke 17, same story, increase our faith. And then the Lord says, If you had faith, you would speak to the sycamine tree. And the sycamine tree represents roots of the heart. Because the problem is not your friend sinning against you, but the deep-rooted unforgiveness, belligerence, hostility, and vengeance that's still in us. Increase our faith. If you had faith, you would speak to this sycamine tree, which is a deeply rooted, tenacious tree. Get out of here and go in the sea, and it would obey you. The problem is not their sin, but our love. That's always going to be the problem, not the thing committed against us, because we've all been betrayed. We've all been hurt, even this week. it's not that. That's not the problem. Our ability or inability to forgive is the problem, and we can speak to that. If we want more faith, speak to yourself. Amen. Until 70 times 7. So then he puts forth this wonderful parable that just absolutely stinks, because <laughs> we've all been here. Therefore, is the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king which would take account of his servants? Actually, let me read this in the New Living Translation. Whoever's on the projector, let's throw it up there. I wanted to read it in the Bible because I just told you you should have a Bible and not be on a digital device or put jumbo scriptures up. But it reads so good in the New Living Translation because it's a modern paraphrase. And then I'm going like to finish it in the King James so I can like look at paper again. All right? Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date. And The Lord does this regularly. He brings his accounts up to date. With servants who had borrowed money from him, what have we been given? We have borrowed so much mercy from our God. And this is why I like this translation. It, it applies to us so much easily in this matter. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. That is, in the King James Uh, How many talents? 10,000 talents, 375 tons of silver, 375 tons of silver, millions of dollars. How much are we indebted to our God for mercy and forgiveness, right standing? How much does he wink at that we know about? And then there's all the unknown sins he's just winking at that he's not even bothered to speak of yet. He couldn't pay, verse 25, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. Right here, it lets us know that our sins will affect our wives and children. This is why we want to get rid of it. We don't want to exploit anything. Fathers, hear me. Your lifestyle can punish your children and your wife, or your lifestyle can bless them and promote them. It always deals with the head of household. It always deals with the head of household. It always begins with the head of household. 26, the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. 375 tons of silver, just wipe it clean because he cried for mercy. Once again, honestly, going into further debt, have mercy. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. De- grabbed him by the throat. That's, that really speaks to the violence of our heart. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. A few thousand dollars. The, mar- the footnote in my book says, uh, my app here says, a, a laborer's full day wage. He owed 375 tons of silver, but the man only owes him maybe a hundred bucks. Grabs him by the throat over a couple hundred bucks. He demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me. I will repay it, which is exactly what the wicked man requested from the Lord. And he pleaded, but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. The question arises, how do you pay off the debt when you're in prison? Will your wife and children really hustle? You force your children into labor. You you force your wife to sell stuff and to go to her father and, and maybe do unsavory things. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. Because it's not just. It's a true injustice. Unforgiveness is a true injustice. They went to the king and told him everything that happened. It is biblical to tell on each other. <laughs> then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant. That feels a little judgy. God is very judgy. I forgave you tremendous, that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you, have, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. So now the table is turned, not just a debtor's prison. Now he's tortured until his wife and kids can collect 375 tons of silver. The word torturer, King James says, and to the tormentors, it is a specific word. It is a hapax legomenon, which means it only appears once in the New Testament. It is an inquisitor. It's someone who tortures till truth is extracted. And it's used on purpose because you will be tortured until forgiveness comes forth. Now, Pastor Vaughn taught this years ago, and I like his take on it. And Dr. Barclay has said something similar. When we don't forgive, we are condemned to live under torment. And that torment will make us miserable until truth is extracted, Till we realize I need to drop the charges. And we know the context of the whole parable is forgiveness. And it's allegorized or principalized with money. When someone sins against you, they're in your debt and you drop the charges. And when you sin against someone, you're now in their debt because they have to pay you forgiveness. doesn't mean they want to. And if we have freely received, we ought to freely give. And now if we put it back towards the Lord, he has forgiven us so many things. Every sin we commit is against our God. And he forgives us all of it. And when we sin against each other, it's typically one petty thing. And if someone sins against us, it's typically one petty thing. And how can we expect God to forgive us of 10,000 things and we can't even forgive somebody of one thing? And honestly, when we get sinned against, unless it's just some egregious, illegal activity, it's typically nothing more than a violation of personal pride. And yet when we sin against God, we violate his divine holiness. And it's a much more painful thing for him in his divinity than that petty little violation of personal pride is for us. And we've all been there. Somebody says something snide and it just rubs us the wrong way. And we seethe over it for days. And yet every time we sin, it rubs our God the wrong way and violates his sacredness. We forgive primarily for our sake so we can avoid the tormentors. We forgive, we drop the charges so we don't have to exhaust our lives mentally playing judge, jury and executioner. When we forgive, you can tell we've forgiven because your mind doesn't scratch at it anymore. That thing that violation is no longer some cracked tooth or hurt tooth or new tooth or missing tooth that your tongue keeps rubbing over and over again. You know how you do that if you go Something you got a cold sore or something stuck, popcorn kernel, your tongue finds it and won't leave it alone. You wake up in the morning, even the dental floss didn't get it. Hopefully, you know, you go to sleep. Maybe you should brush your teeth before you go to sleep, work on that corn kernel. Maybe you fall asleep hoping the mouth fairy will come get it for you. Some of you got dogs, maybe they find you and like lick your mouth out for you. Some of you do it because you're weird. (laughs) Have more love for that dog and a human being. But you know how your tongue just finds that corn kernel or that thing and I can't even have a normal conversation. You look like like sling blade or something or Forrest Gump. Uh, when we get sinned against, our heart does the same thing. It just keeps rubbing that thing, rubbing that thing, rubbing that thing. You can tell you're forgiven when the thing's gone. You don't rub it anymore. Somebody has to remind you. Remember that? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. We don't want to exhaust our lives mentally playing judge, jury, and executioner. We forgive because it takes our hands off the problem and allows God to put his hands on the situation. We forgive because it prevents us from pursuing vengeance. All vengeance isn't the same, but all vengeance is still vengeance. Not all vengeance includes murder, not all vengeance includes uh, come up and s- sometimes we just want to get back at somebody in a petty way. We say something in a conversation just to dig back. That's still vengeance. Romans 12. Let's read this. I'm going to read this in the King James, I promise you, because I need to. Romans 12, verse 18. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you live peaceably with all men, which means it's not always possible because there are some people who are just belligerent and hostile. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. This is a hard statement even for me. Here we have a New Testament commandment to feed those that hate us. If he thirsts, give him drink, for in doing so thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. That does not mean set his face on fire. Oh, yeah. As I've read in commentaries, this is a custom that gives coals to a turban to heat someone on a cold night. It's the highest form of honor in many of these ancient Asiatic cultures. It doesn't mean, yeah, you'll really get back at them. You'll get their goat. What better way to give them vengeance than to poison that food and that drink? It means being the much bigger person. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Forgiveness is how we avoid the overcoming of evil. Don't be overcome with evil. Forgive, we could insert, overcome evil with good. Forgive. Hebrews 10.30, turn there real quick. Hebrews 10.30 takes the same passage and brings us into better focus. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's what it says there in Romans 12, quoting the Old Testament. But Hebrews 10, verse 29 says, don't do despite unto the spirit of grace. Verse 30 says, for we know him that has said, vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. The author of Hebrews says, vengeance is mine. He applies it to God will take vengeance out on his own people. Isn't it interesting? We want to use that verse because we want vengeance. But God says, I'll take vengeance on you guys first. And when you realize God will take vengeance and repay his own people with judgment first, then you start asking, give me another opportunity to demonstrate mercy so I can reap some. It is amazing how quick we are to judge to condemnation. You have to judge to stay safe. But to the point of condemnation, it is amazing how quickly we withhold mercy from people when we ourselves require it abundantly every day. Not everybody can be dealt with peaceably, but don't be overcome with evil. And here the author of Hebrews says, don't forget... Vengeance is mine. That applies to us first, that God will judge his people first. Verse 31 goes on to say, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All right, Lord, mercy. I like mercy. I like forgiveness. New favorite word, forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's almost like Sesame Street. Let's learn how to say it again because we forgot. Vengeance is what we want when we can't forgive and excuse. And the sin nature and wicked heart won't allow us to gain even reasonable vengeance. We want escalated retaliation. It's not enough to forgive. We want to teach people a lesson they'll never forget. Anybody ever thought that way? When you want to teach somebody a lesson, there is no forgiveness in you. The Bible doesn't say forgive and then teach them a lesson. The Bible says forgive. That's it. Period. But this introduces an, a concept that even as New Testament believers, most maybe because we got a sin nature, maybe because we're American. I don't know. We don't even apply Old Testament theology to our vengeance. And I'm going to show it to you here in a second. So here's a story. I was sharing this. Brother Chad and I were out shooting guns the other day. I think I was telling him this story. 20-something years ago, 22 years ago, I was with some family down hunting. I've told this story before. Hunting at this awesome place in Mississippi wintertime hunting deer. It's like 10 of us. It's a real hunting preserve. It's like a hunting cabin, 80 acres. Everybody around there has nothing but their land for hunting. There's a lake we're hunting on, uh, 70, 80 acres. There's two cabins. It's rustic. It's everything people pay money to go do. And we're hunting whitetail deer. It's awesome. It's fun. I'm with extended family. And there's some guys down there that own the property that are friends with extended family. We're down there and I'm the new guy on the scene. And, uh, Some of the guys are carnal. They get drunk the first night we're down there, and uh, we're hanging out in one of the cabins, and the drunk guy who owns everything, he's a wealthy doctor, he begins running his mouth, as drunks do, and uh, he begins saying very vile things, sexually vile things. And then because I'm the new guy, I become the aim of it. No details necessary. He then directs his sexual vileness towards family members of mine and women. Now, here's a scenario. He's drunk. He's actually sitting in a rocking chair right here. We're in a cabin. There's a fireplace here. Rack of guns there. Rack of guns there. Guns, 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 guns. Because this is the South and God bless America. And they're all loaded. (laughs) And I happen to get caught in the middle. And he just, it's his place. So everybody's kind of spineless and deferring to him as he denigrates me and sexually assaults family. And I'm sitting there seething. And in my heart, I'm thinking, you are a moron. Everybody here is uncomfortable. Even your sons are embarrassed by you. They're saying, Dad, shut up. Dad, shut up. And I think, there's a loaded 30 out six. There's a loaded 30 wind mag, 300 wind mag. I don't know what caliber it is, but it'll shoot. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going to put a hole in your chest. And I think most dudes have felt that. Even my vengeance is unbiblical, the retaliation is extremely escalated. His sons finally spoke up and said, shut up, dad. You're drunk and you're embarrassing us. Come on, let's go back to our cabin and leave these guys alone. And they drug him off. And everybody after that was apologetic. And I just stewed over that. I didn't even want to talk to the guy. I don't care about your property. I don't care about your money. I still want to shoot you from a deer stand because then I could say I didn't see him. He was wearing camo. (laughs) That was a really good headshot. through an orange hat. I've never shot a rifle before. I don't know what to tell you. Weirder things have happened. So I got home, stewed over it for another couple weeks. It's the most offensive, offended I've ever been, I think, in my whole life. And I can't even explain it to you. I just stood over it. So I finally told my family member, you know that guy, so-and-so? Yeah. Explain the situation. And they said, and they were one of the victims of the sexual verbal assault. They said, he's an old drunk pagan. Why do you care? I don't know. <laughs> Felt like it was an important thing to care about Maybe I just want to kill a man. I'm not really sure. Murder's definitely in my veins. (laughs) So they said, just pray for him. Because the next year, we're going to go hunting with him again. So I did. I spent the next 11 months praying for him. His name was Mo, Dr. Mo. Spent the next 11 months praying for him, praying for his salvation, praying for his family, praying, praying, praying. I did it for my sake. By the time we get down there, I can't wait to be with Mo, Dr. Mo because I feel so bad for him. Sure. I did everything I could to be with him everywhere we went. And I really pulled myself alongside him, and I realized what a broken man he is. His grown kids have no respect for him. His wife was cheating on him. All the money meant nothing to him. He was, and now he's a totally different man to me. We're just 12 months prior, I'm really contemplating which caliber I'm gonna put a sucking hole through your chest with. But here's the issue. Born again, spirit-filled, raised in church. Even my vengeance is unbiblical because the law permits I for I. Not sucking chest wound for verbal insult. But we've all been there. Even this week we've all been there. Because forgiveness is a doctrine so foreign to us. We're even worse than that. We want preemptive strikes. I'm going to get you before you even think about getting me. No, that's a hostile, unrenewed soul. Exodus 21 says the punishment must match the injury. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, burn for burn, limb for limb. New Living Translation says the punishment for vengeance must match the injury. We don't even do that. We want a preemptive strike and teach them a lesson. We want scorched earth. We want to nuke them back to the friggin' stone age. We've all, dads are that way, especially with their kids. We got morons that drive through our neighborhood too fast, like morons in your neighborhood, and they drive past, and I have these conversations in my mind. What's the best way to stop that car? A gun. No, a rock. Rock is safer, less to fight over. Then what would I say? If you hit my kid, I'd have to burn your house to the ground. I've burned so many houses to the ground, literally, in my mind, not, not literally. That's just us. It's testosterone. It's hostility. It's a sin nature. And yet even Hammurabi's code, which predates the law of Moses, says eye for an eye. Because that's what's just. You took from me, I take the equal from you. you at the very least, I should have said, Dr. Mo, your mama. I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Then he would have escalated it because that's what white trash does. And then I would have escalated because that's what white trash does. The next thing you know, we're fighting on the ground. Except I was fresh out of jujitsu and he's drunk and old. So for an insult, I would have broken his shoulder and dislocated his elbow. And let's read Matthew 5. We'll close here. We don't follow the Old Testament law that we claim is so easy to fulfill. We go beyond it. The Old Testament stops us at eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The punishment must match the injury. We go tactical on it. We don't want them to just repent. We want to teach them a lesson. Why? So they never do it to us again. If that means killing them, if that means silencing them, if that means changing them. But why are we more interested in changing them than changing us? If we can't do this among each other, we're not going to stand a chance, and they start attacking businesses, attacking our education. We're going to have to become a greater people of prayer and forgiveness than ever before. Faith works by love. The greatest manifestation of love is forgiveness. Matthew 5, real quick. We'll close with this. I'm going to read a couple verses. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, verse 38. You've heard that it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. That's, I don't like that. I want to say I disagree with that. Don't resist evil. You're telling me, Lord, to let evil happen to me? You can't always prevent it. We, we do our best. But these are the words of Jesus. And this is where I say, I don't like even my own sermon right now. I'm still enough of a red-blooded, independent American. How dare you? want to fight a revolution over a 2% tea tax. I'm going to murder the redcoats because you taxed our tea. I'm still too much for that, and so are many of us here. Do not resist evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn and let him have the other. And if any man will sue thee at law... And take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. That's a reference to the Roman soldiers. Go two miles. Roman law permitted a soldier to grab anybody and make him carry his armor for a mile. Jesus says, go the extra mile. That's where we get the term. Go the extra mile. Give to him that asks thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. I know there's a balance to all this. I don't even want to touch the balance. I want to get us more into a flow of forgiveness and get us away from scorched earth retribution. This is a redneck region, not that it's unique to us, but we know our people, we know our culture. We're vindictive, we're, we're full of Hatfields and McCoys. I'm gonna kill you before you kill me. Gangbanger violence, I'm gonna shoot you guys up before you shoot me up. Tribal violence, I'm gonna spear you before you spear me. Where does it stop? I share with you the whole reason Iceland claims to be Christian is because a thousand years ago at the All Thingy, which is the first parliamentary in the world, they said, if we keep serving the old Norse gods, we're going to kill each other. We need to embrace the God of Christianity because it's a God of forgiveness. Let's forgive each other so we can live. Verse 43, you have heard that has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the Old Testament. I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. That is, pray for them. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Yes, there are psalms of imprecation, but they shouldn't be the first psalms we go to. That means an imprecation is where you call down the wrath of God. One of my friends just heard a sermon he was sharing with me yesterday that said, plead the blood of Jesus over your enemies so God doesn't have to destroy them. I don't want to do that. I want God to destroy them. But maybe I'm the problem. Pastor Vaughn used to teach us years ago, pray that God will get a hold of your enemies. Because if God gets a hold of them, they'll get born again. They'll become right with God. Think about the early Christians persecuted by Paul. God, get a hold of that Saul of Tarsus. Get a hold of him. God said, okay. He's going to be ministering for you next week. (laughs) What? (laughs) Pray for them that spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. I don't like this, to be honest, that to be a child of God, I have to forgive and be good to enemies. It's, con- it's counterintuitive to everything in us. We want to get even. And that's a lie. We don't want to get even. We want to nuke back to the Stone Age. Because even is Old Testament. Eye for an eye. We don't want even. We want comeuppance. We want to teach them a lesson that their grandchildren will never forget. Wow. I guess you are judge, jury, and executioner. Oof. I'm telling you, it's a hard message for all of us. But we gotta master it. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. They're good and evil, and he blesses both equally. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Don't even the publicans the same? This verse I do want to read to you out of the New Living. Don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. This verse in the New Living translation is very convicting. Matthew 18, 40. I'm sorry, I was in the right place. Matthew 5. Give me one second here as I find it. It says, If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. And if you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. Most other translations would say mature. You're to be mature, even as your father in heaven is mature. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anybody else? Even pagans do that. And if you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. We are to forgive when we want vengeance. We're to forgive, drop the charges, and walk away. And say, not my pig, not my farm. Forgiveness doesn't mean you forget. Let's clarify that. We're going to be teaching on forgiveness a lot for the next few weeks. We'll cover that. Forgiveness doesn't mean you have to forget. We have good memories. And honestly, somebody could really violate you, and maybe you don't need to ever be around them again for safety's sake. So please don't follow the foolish lie that says, well, if you haven't forgotten, then you haven't forgiven. No, I can forgive, and I'm not going to forget how you hurt my child. So uh, I'm just going to like... Keep that restraining order in place. I love you. I hope you don't go to hell, but we're never going to let you around our kids again. And I can say that with a clear heart. And I believe the best of every person, but the best I believe is that you should honor that restraining order so you don't have to go to jail for violation thereof. It doesn't mean we have to roll over and be stupid. But we should forgive rather than seek vengeance because we, do we don't do eye for an eye. We don't do getting even we do comeuppance and that never works the righteousness of God. The Bible says the anger of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So this also will challenge all of our emotions. We, we, our culture is all about getting even and we have to get God. I'm not looking about getting even. I want to get God because the will of God is for every one of my enemies to serve him. And if I want the will of God, then I've got to pray for their salvation and that they would walk with their God. My God. Amen. Amen?